0: let's hear the word of the Lord together.
1: A reading from the book of the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous person
2: will live by his faithfulness. The Word of the Lord. A reading from the second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the Church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord.
0: The Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 19, starting with verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Gospel of the Lord. Today we are, we've got a few interesting stories, a few interesting readings in front of us. I think one of the great challenges for Christians throughout the centuries, one of the things that different Christian traditions have wrestled with, is how to speak about two things at the same time. How do we speak about the fact that human beings are good, in a sense? We're created in the image of God. We are God's good creation. And then also, how do we speak about humans as broken and, being bro- and brokenness? How do we talk about both of those things at the same time? Human beings are created in the image of God. So there's a beauty in humanity, that being human, being created in the image of God, being reflected to worship God is a beautiful thing. We are God's creation. And yet we all know we are all squirrely. That is a philosophical term. We know that there's something cracked, there's something flawed, there's something inadequate about in ourselves and in our behaviors. So how do we talk about both of those things? Well, the Bible does so with great nuance. The Bible talks about both of these things and and proclaims brokenness pretty strongly. speaks about the brokenness of humanity. We heard that really clearly in our Old Testament reading, but also in our Zacchaeus story as well. We hear about the brokenness of humanity, but also the Bible never acknowledges that the brokenness is the end of the story because it's not. It's not how things are supposed to be. Our Old Testament reading comes from the prophet Habakkuk. Now, unlike many of the other prophets, Habakkuk is unique in his style. If you, if you read the different prophets, they're all a little different stylistically, which is pretty cool, and their personalities are all a little different. Habakkuk never speaks for God to Israel. A lot of the other prophets do that. They condemn Israel. They call Israel out because of their behavior and speak to Israel. But no, Habakkuk speaks to God, and he laments Israel's bad behavior. That's what Habakkuk does. He represents what's often called a theodicy. Theodicy is a wrestling with how can God be truly good when there is so much evil in the world? This is a classic question, right? And it's not one we can answer today, and it's not one that we answer in a seminar. It's the wrestling with God. God, how are you good? How is your character good when there is so much evil in the world? Many today today see the state of the world and ask the same question. And then what's tough is many then look at the church, God's people, and say, how can God be loving if his people often do this stuff? They're squirrely, right? Habakkuk tells God that there's violence and injustice throughout Judah. He says the wicked, hem in the righteous, the Torah, the law is violated. There's conflict everywhere. And the implicit question is, God, will you do anything? Why won't you do anything about this? Well, then in the discourse, which we're not given all of this today in our lectionary reading, but in the discourse, God responds saying that he's gonna, he sees all that's going on in Israel and he's raising up the Babylonians, a wicked people, to bring, to bring judgment on the people of Israel. That's how he's going to deal with it. Well, Habakkuk, as you can imagine, doesn't like that answer. (laughs) Says no, because that solution is even worse than the problem. The cure is worse than the disease. Why? Because the Babylonians are evil. Everything they do is exploitative and treacherous. Why would you use them to bring about your judgment? So he says, God, are you not of old? In other words, are you not from the beginning? Are you not eternal? The Babylonian God is false and is just a projection and is nothing. But I thought your roots, God, ran deeper because you go back to the beginning, Just as God is from the beginning, so God will never die. So we see this, aren't you from old? Aren't you rooted? You're more rooted than all the gods that we can create and the God that the Babylonians have created. Habakkuk's lament recalls, I think, for us, the things in our lives that we know will ultimately perish, the things that are not of old. So just like the Babylonian God was just a projection of their own violent aims, just something they had created, So we, too, often give power to those things that are just projections of our own broken desires. We craft gods of consumerism, nationalism, materialism, which are in some sense new. They're projected. They're created. They're not any real thing. And yet we give them power, but they will ultimately pass away. In verse 14, the prophet launches into this extended metaphor about a fish caught in a net and the point is to show that humanity is ultimately helpless. So fish don't have a king to protect them from fishermen, right? They're, they're just out there. They don't have anybody that any system they've created. There's no structure to kind of protect them or protect their rights or anything like that. And so in that way, it seems like they're different from human beings because they're kind of on their own. But we have kings and we have rulers and we have systems and structures we've created. And yet, the point here is that that's actually the case for us as well. We're just fish. Our systems aren't enough. The systems we've crafted to protect ourselves are no match for God. Again, we need to think about the false gods to which we have given power. Do we think our political leaders or a political party has the final say? We've got an election coming up. Sometimes that becomes front of mind for people. Do we believe that our plans for the future Our career trajectory, these kind of things, will have the final say in our lives. Are those the things that define us? Well, these things are nothing compared to the vastness and goodness of God. And then in continuing the metaphor on fish, Habakkuk says that the wicked foe, Babylon, treats people like fish. So he just objectifies them and uses them for his own purposes. Unfortunately, this is often how our world operates. The German Jewish uh, philosopher, uh, Martin Buber, who lived in 1878 to 1965, he he explores the relationships between persons and how these relationships work. He says there's kind of two types, or three types of relationships, okay? There's the, the first relationship is an I-it relationship. And it's not a relationship at all. It's just objectification. It's treating another person as a thing, something to be used, right, for my own advantage, for me to do with as I like. So when you're in a relationship with an it, an I-it, there is no relationship. Like you you look at them and you just tell them what you want. It's objectification, I-it. And often we treat relationships that way. The second kind of relationship is an us-them relationship. And this is where the whole world is divided into children of darkness and children of light. So if you agree with me, if you have my same worldview, if you have my perspective, you are brilliant and you are one of the children of light. If you disagree with me and you're in a different camp, you're them. You're part of the children of darkness. Complexities vanish with an us-them relationship. Blame is the game. The other side, the children of darkness, the them are to blame for all the world's problems. This is why demagogues are drawn to us-them characterizations. We're the good side, they're the bad side. Because if I can neatly divide the world, that makes everything more simple. They're the enemy. Then there's the third. So there's I, it, us, them, and then the third one is I, you. And this is really the basic word in an accurately live life. Fuber says, I, you can can be spoken only with one's whole being. The concentration and fusion into a whole being can never be accomplished by me and can never be accomplished without me. I require a you to become. Becoming, I I say you. <laughs> All life is an actual encounter. So what this means is when I recognize that you're created in the image of God, that you are a person with dignity and value and worth. We can have a real relationship. Not an us-them relationship, not an I-it relationship. We can have a real relationship. Well, the temptation throughout history is always to objectify the other, the I-it, or to other the other, us-them. So throughout history, we're always tempted to look at other people either as objects or as the other side. And that is really the lament that's expressed by Habakkuk. That's what the Babylonians do. They objectify people. It's a failure to see the inherent value of human beings. Because Babylon objectifies others, Habakkuk is bothered by God's answer. God, how are you going to use Babylon to bring about justice? They're awful. So he says, I'm going to stand like a watchman of the night to see what God says when he comes in the morning. Well, in response to this, God tells Habakkuk to get his tablets and write down the vision. Christian leadership loves this verse, like talking about Christian leadership uh, books and things like that. Write the vision and make it plain. I think I've heard that a million times, right? You want to write it out, you know, say exactly what your vision is. Um, And there's some kind of positive uh, element to that. But the idea here is trust that there's more than what you can see. Trust in this vision that's being written down. It may take a while, but it will surely happen. In fact, the person who is righteous will live according to their faith or their trust in this vision. The central idea of the vision is that God will make things. God is not content with the world as it is, and God will judge even Babylon for their evil. John Golden Gay writes, when you live under the oppressive authority of a superpower, it's easy to believe that might is right, that power is all that counts. Take the long view. In fact, Apostle Paul quotes this, and he centers it as a declaration of the gospel in Christ. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. So when we live in a world where it seems like everything is stacked against the way of Jesus, everything is stacked against the gospel, the people of God hold on to a deeper truth that it is God who has the final word on things. He has the final say. Fleming Rutledge says, In the face of death, Christians talk about resurrection. In the face of evil, Christians go on trusting God. In the face of scorn, Christians are not ashamed of the gospel because we know that there's something deeper than what we experience, that we can trust in a vision, that we can be made right and trust in this vision by faith that there's more to our story. In our epistle reading, Paul is writing his second letter to the church at Thessalonica, and it begins, "...to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." Now, at this time, there were these new coins that had just come out in Thessalonica, and they had had a picture of the head of the Emperor Octavian on them. (laughs) And then underneath it, it said Theos, which is the Greek word for God. This was the first time in Thessalonica that the Roman Empire had put the word God on an emperor's face on the coin. And so we know that Paul was probably aware of this coin. He knew that this was circulating and this was going on. So the way that he phrases this letter is probably to counter the emperor at this time, to speak against it. Um, Ben Witherington writes, He is calling the assembly of Thessalonian believers to order, and they are meeting in the name of and under the protection of grace and peace of the father and son, rather than the peace and security of the emperor. So he's communicating to them, this is why you're gathered. This is your authority, the father and the son. Your authority does not come from the emperor. And then after that, Paul gives thanks. Why? Well, he says because the church's faith is growing more and more and their love is increasing. In other words, they trust God and that's showing in how they treat one another. So they trust in God, they have faith in God, and it's showing in how they love one another. And Paul gives God the credit for this. So he doesn't go to them and say, good job, guys. Like, way to go. Just keep working harder. Keep plugging away at it. No, he says, God, thank you that their faith is increasing. He gives God the credit because God is doing the work in their hearts. But the weird thing is God is giving, or Paul is giving thanks to God and the people are to give thanks to God in the midst of their suffering. So the people at this time are suffering under the hands of the empire. They are going through trials and persecution. And this suffering becomes an important theme for Paul in the letter. They are to give thanks that God is working. And Paul believes God is working in the midst of their suffering. Psychologist Dan Allender says that gratitude, when we give thanks, we give gratitude. It implies something has been given to us that is undeserved, It's acknowledging that there's some sense of failure on our part. There's something we didn't have before, we were missing before, and we can give gratitude that we've been given something. The only way we can celebrate true gratitude is when we recognize, Allender says, our own emptiness, desperation, and inadequacy. All of these things are acknowledging, I need something. I need rescue. I'm dependent. I need a savior. Now, there's a difference, Allender says, between blessings, gifts that are the product of hard work or our condition, and things that are genuinely undeserved. The good news of the gospel is that it is undeserved. We cannot achieve our own redemption. Now, as Westerners, we often think about the things that we can do. We often think all of our life is somehow in our control. That if I can do enough, or work hard enough, or get the conditions quite right, I can make whatever happen that I want to happen. But then we lose control. Situations happen where that myth or that illusion of control is shattered. Trauma creates a context for this inner sense of feeling desperate and inadequate. We reach those moments where we go, I just can't do it anymore. I don't have the resources or capacity To make it through this. In the midst of trauma, we experience the brokenness within us, the places where we need help, where we can't fix it. Well, in this reading, Paul has recognized his own weakness, and he's acknowledged that elsewhere. And then he's recognizing the weakness of the Thessalonians, that they're suffering, they're under persecution. And this allows Paul to know There's fruit that's been produced in their life. There's goodness of faith and hope. And that's just the gift of grace. It's undeserved. Then once we turn to gratitude, once we thank God, it changes us. It has a transforming effect on us. So when we admit our brokenness and we thank God for grace, it changes us. It transforms us. John Wesley writes, gratitude to our creator will surely produce benevolence to our fellow creatures. If we love him, We cannot but but love one another as Christ loved us. When When we're grateful, when we give thanks, it changes us and it changes how we live with one another. In fact, every Sunday when we come to the communion table, we repeat this phrase. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. It is a good thing to give thanks. Paul says this thing that's happening in the Thessalonians is so amazing. The Thessalonians' faith continues to grow in the midst of incredible suffering. And he says it's so amazing, he boasts about it wherever he goes. So all the churches he talks to, he brags about these guys. And he's not bragging about them or their effort. He's not bragging about his own teaching or his own church planning ability. He is bragging about the fact that God has done something even in the midst of suffering. Look at these Thessalonians. Their faith is growing and their love is growing even though they're under persecution. And he praises God for that. And then he says he prays for them constantly that they would live up to their calling. Because the growing of faith, the transformation that happens in their life, is a process. God's people are to live in such a way that they're prepared for his new world, which has Christ as the center. Now, when we're prepared for God's new world, when we live in such a way that we see this future that has Christ at the center, it does require a lot of effort. It requires a lot of focus and determination. It requires centering ourselves on Christ, but it's never undergirded by willpower. It's undergirded by the grace of God. For it is God who will ultimately bring their calling to fruition. Paul prays that every desire they have for goodness and work flows out of their faith to fulfillment. This is by his power, meaning the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, This week... Uh, biblical scholar Gordon Fee, who if you've never heard of him, it's totally fine. He was kind of, it was an intense scholar and studied a lot of his work, but he, he died this week. And Fee was known for one really important book. He's known for a lot of books, but one kind of popular level book that um, was really influential to a lot of people. is called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And it was really the go-to book that I recommended to people when they first kind of trying to study the Bible in depth. And he also wrote a bunch of really rich commentaries. Fee was a charismatic Christian. He was a member of the Assemblies of God. And he was one of the strongest scholarly advocates for women in ministry. Had a really important role and and significant life and was a, a really devoted follower of Jesus. Well, Fee wrote about this passage. And actually, I had prepared all of these notes before I found out that he died and uh, he, he wrote this about this passage, and he said this, The church and its individual members are not left on their own, to their own devices, as it were. Rather, God has committed himself to them to empower such a life through the indwelling Spirit. So we're not alone in this life. The Christian faith is not just a bunch of ethics where we go, Yeah, we we want to do the right things. It is ethics. It does involve ethics for sure. But it's not only ethics because we're not doing this by ourselves. It's not just a list of right things that we're supposed to do. We have the Holy Spirit in us, empowering us and shaping us to be the people of God and to live his new world here and now. Our gospel reading is... I would say it's fun. (laughs) Um, uh, We don't get to say that about all of our gospel readings, but uh, uh, Lucy this morning, she looked over at the coloring sheets and saw that it was Zacchaeus, you know, the story of Zacchaeus. She said, is this our story for today? And I said, yes, it is. She said, yes. Well, kids love this story of Zacchaeus, right? And there's a reason for that. It provides us with rich and colorful imagery. There's a little man who climbs up a tree, (laughs) He's little, like many kids are little. He climbs trees, like many children like to climb trees. If you ever grew up in church, you know this story. Do you remember the song? Does anybody know the song? Kios was a wee little man, a wee little man. Was he." Okay, anyway. Well, in this story, Luke, the author, wants us to see that Jesus brings transformation. He brings a new life altogether. So even though for us, this story might even seem cute, Right? Zacchaeus was not seen as cute in the first century. Okay? Tax collectors were traitors. They were accomplices to the corrupt pagan government. They were traitors to their people. They were often known for collecting more than what was required in order to line their pockets. And then we're told Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. So he not only earned extra money himself from collecting taxes, he earned even more money from those who worked under him. So it was like a pyramid scheme kind of thing going on, where he's getting so much extra stuff lining his pockets. Well, on top of this, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was wealthy or rich. Which for us, we kind of go, okay, that's a, a fact in the story. For Luke, that's a bad word. okay When Luke says somebody is rich or they're wealthy, it's a code for us to see, ooh, they were a little too focused on their riches. all right They needed to be flipped upside down. So Zacchaeus represents the same kind of power we see in our Old Testament reading. Objectifying power. The power that desires only to get ahead. More money at all costs. Zacchaeus becomes an emblem of money-hungry power. This is humanity left to our own devices, out for ourselves. In other words, Zacchaeus is the emblem of humanity's problem. But Zacchaeus is curious about Jesus. And he's trying, or the word is seeking, to see him. He wants to see him. But because of his diminutive size, he races ahead and climbs a sycamore fig tree to see Jesus. Now, this is supposed to be funny, all right? Luke, we think that there's some humor here in the colorful imagery that he has of Zacchaeus climbing a tree and getting up there in order to see Jesus. And it gets even funnier because it says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up. So what we're supposed to see here is Zacchaeus is trying really, really hard to see Jesus, and he's searching for Jesus, but then Jesus actually looks up, and he's the one who sees him and gets his attention. One scholar says Zacchaeus sought to see him, but he is the one to see Zacchaeus. St. Augustine has a really substantive part of one of his sermons about the importance of the crowds in this story. So it's the crowds who limit Zacchaeus from initially seeing Jesus. He's pushing through the crowds, and he can't see through the crowds in order to see Jesus. Augustine says, The crowd laughs at the lowly to people walking the way of humility who leave the wrongs they suffer in God's hands and do not insist on getting back at their enemies. The crowd laughs at the lowly and says, You helpless, miserable clod, You cannot even stick up for yourself and get back what is your own. The crowd gets in the way and prevents Jesus from being seen. The crowd boasts and crows when it is able to get back what it owns. It blocks the sight of the one who said as he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. In other words, the crowds don't get it. But What Zacchaeus does in this story is counter-crowd. It's counter-intuitive. It's counter-cultural. He does something completely different. He ascends above the noise and above the crowds. What the crowds see as ridiculous and what we're supposed to laugh at and think is funny is actually what embodies the kingdom of God. And Augustine says that as Christians, we actually need to lean in to that place of strangeness, that place of embarrassment, that place of counter-crowdness or counter-intuitiveness, that place of weakness. And he says, let Zacchaeus grasp the sycamore tree and let the humble person climb the cross. That is little enough merely to climb it. We must not be ashamed of the cross of Christ, but we must fix it on our foreheads where the seat of shame is. Above where all our blushes show is the place we must firmly fix that for which we should never blush. What does that mean? Well, it means that there's those places in our lives where, where we know that we've, we're weak, or we've missed it, or we're broken. And sometimes what we want to do is we want to hide those things, be afraid of those things, be ashamed of those things. But what Augustine says is actually what Zacchaeus did, is he kind of leaned into those things. He knew that he needed more than that. That place of our blushing, that place of that feels odd or strange or we're not enough or weak, we should lean into that place. And when he does that, Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name. He tells the man to come down immediately and he invites himself over to his house. And we notice that Zacchaeus' response is instantly receptive. So he sees Zacchaeus, Jesus sees Zacchaeus, before Zacchaeus is able to even see Jesus, and then something unlocks in his heart. And as Zacchaeus opens his heart, he's then urged by Jesus to open his home. That goes together, opening his heart and opening his home. So hospitality becomes the context for Zacchaeus's transformation. There are so many things in our life that happens. There's growth and change, discovery of beauty, when we open our hearts and our homes to others. But the crowd here can't handle it. They don't, they don't get it. They can't handle it. So they start to grumble. Jesus is eating with a sinner. This guy has a reputation. He's not only the chief tax collector, but that, in their minds, that makes him the chief sinner. Why would Jesus hang out with him? But something about the encounter with Jesus changes Zacchaeus, and it causes him to repent. And he makes, he makes amends. So he chooses to give half of his possessions to the poor and pay back anyone he's cheated four times the amount. Well, it's really cool what Jesus says in response to Zacchaeus' decision. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Now remember back in verse 5, Jesus said to Zacchaeus, I am coming to your house today. And then here in verse 9, he says salvation has come to this house. Jesus has come to this house. Jesus has been present here. Uh, hospitality has been opened on both sides, Jesus and Zacchaeus, and we see that transformation, salvation has occurred. And then Jesus reminds us at the end, at the end of this passage of his mission, to seek and to save that which was lost. This is the whole point of Jesus' journey to the cross, which we'll see unfold in the story after this. Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus, climbing a tree, trying to get over himself and get over the crowds. But he didn't realize that as he was seeking Jesus, that Jesus is seeking him. The continual mission of Jesus is to go to the outsider, the despised, those who are far away, and to declare salvation. Now, for us, our mind may immediately go to, okay, who are the outsiders in our world? And that's where it should go. That's good. But there's two parts to remember here. There's first of all to remember that all of us are far away, or we're far away. All of us. Um, have been rescued. All of us have been sought, have been sought out, and have been set free, and have been saved. And as we do that, we're able to go, there's nobody too far away for this. There's nobody too far away for the kingdom of God. On the cross, Jesus goes to the place of the criminal, and ultimately to the place of ultimate lostness, death itself, in order to seek and to save. The main question for us today is do we believe this kind of transformation is possible? In our lives, maybe we have parts of us that we go, gosh, that just isn't right. That's not how it's supposed to be. Do we believe that, that we're embraced just as we are? And do we believe that healing and transformation is possible? Do we believe that transformation is possible for the world? Gosh, we live in such a cynical world right now, don't we? Where it's just so common and popular to just kind of laugh everything off. Nothing matters. Ha, 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 ha. Do we believe that this transformation is really possible? The kingdom of God is God is actually at work in our midst. Do we believe this transformation is possible for our neighbor? The person at the cubicle next to us. The person who gets all the eye rolls. Do we believe that that is possible? Does our belief cause us to shout along with Habakkuk, "How long, O oh Lord, will you let this happen?" Does it lead us to acknowledge our dependence? and to gratitude? And does it lead us to hospitality? In the midst of oppressive empires and false narratives that promise peace and prosperity, God is at work. What are these false powers in our world? So today we don't live in an under an emperor who says that he's God you know what what does this look like for us what are the principalities and powers in our world what are the messages that seek to define who we are who are the crowds and how do they keep us from seeing Jesus what about Jesus is so counterintuitive well when we believe the crowds when we ultimately think it's us to, uh, up to us, our stature, our money, our reputation. If the world works like that, the journey to the cross makes no sense. For that matter, loving your enemies makes no sense. Turning the other cheek makes no sense. Forgiving, none of that makes any sense. Zacchaeus is not transformed because he looked really hard for Jesus and he found him. No, Jesus found Zacchaeus. Like Judah twisted up in violence in Habakkuk. Like the church of the Thessalonians, struggling under the weight of an oppressive empire, Zacchaeus is held back, not only by the crowd around him, not only by the people's view of him, but by his own choices. Though he was seeking to see Jesus, it is Jesus who spots him, calls him, and calls him to open his heart and his home. And this alone, this calling alone, is enough to bring about dramatic transformation. So the rich man in Luke gives up his riches. The one who seeks Jesus has been sought and saved by Jesus. If nothing else, I hope that these readings today challenge our imaginations of what we think is possible. We live in a world today mired by violence and objectification. And there's a vision that's been made plain in Jesus. There's a greater hope and the just will live by it. In a world of suffering and oppression, God works in small, dispatched communities on the edge of the empire. These communities don't make headlines. They don't seem to carry much power. And this is because the power they carry is the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about the good which they desire. This work and these communities are characterized by faith and love, which is the power of God. So today, may we never forget the mission of God. There's no one too despised, no one too far gone, no one too far outside the boundaries to experience God's saving love. For he is the one who seeks and who saves, the one who is lost. Amen.